Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 62. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And our double feature today is The Collector, uh, the 1965 film by William Wyler, returning champion William Wyler, Mm -hmm. and uh, Link, the 1986 film by Richard Franklin. Now, JT brought this double feature to our attention. Uh, Do you want to tell us a little bit about your selection this week? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, it's about actor returning champion Terrence Stamp, and uh, I haven't seen a lot of Stamp um, but I'm curious. I like the cut of his jib. He's a good fella. And uh, in life, as a young man, you you travel and you go on, and there will be a fork in the road sometimes, and there are two paths you can choose for your life. Pimp mode or chimp mode. <laughs> Sound and, off uh, in the comments. <laughs> you, and you can either go, you can be horny, you can be crazy. You can do all that bullshit and see how how well that turned out for the collector, or you can go chimp mode, access the primal nature within yourself, and truly succeed. Yeah, I like. I love how you call the the collector pimp mode because he's, he's kind of the opposite <laughs> yeah. of a pimp. I think Tio Rima, he's kind of more of a pimp there. <laughs> yeah. But but it, you know what? I I get. I like the pimp or a chimp. Like that's. I've been thinking pimp mode, chimp mode all week. It's really stuck with me. It's like a deep Instagram post or something like that <laughs> well depiction doesn't necessarily mean endorsement you know of course and like i don't want to be a swerf but it's not that like that the, the pimp lifestyle is something to be glorified <laughs> and i think that uh the 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 immoral behaviors of stamp in the first movie uh if you want to call that pimp mode i don't have any problem with that <laughs> i mean i myself i would call myself a pimp there's there's the collo- I call myself a pimp. <laughs> there's the colloquial pimp, which is cool, like something as pimp as an action. Sure, and then but there- I also wouldn't call myself that. <laughs> and then there's the pimp of like owning a woman, yeah. which is bad. That's yeah. bad. That's no good. There's like an English slur for pimp, and I think they're the only ones who got it right. They call it ponce. A ponce. <laughs> because it's like you're like a pussy because you're like making your living off of a woman instead of with your hands. <laughs> You know, well, the British are right again. I always. I just learned that word like yesterday. I hope it's not like a real like bad <laughs> slur. Yeah, no, I've heard ponce before. Okay, okay. Well, back to the movies. <laughs> okay, yeah. Talking about British slang, Cockney slang. Speaking about British slang, uh, William Wilder, classic uh, Hollywood director William Wilder, had to uh, learn a little British slang for this one. I'm sure a uh, a British production. And it was kind of a smaller, independent film that blossomed into a bigger budget project when uh, Wyler was brought on. And this is a film that is kind of taking place as that classic Hollywood system that Wyler participated in is dying. And he's making it in Europe, where there's all these new waves and art house movements flourishing. And, you know, uh, I guess Weiler had made some anti-French New Wave comments, but uh, as Andrew Saris points out in this movie, there's like a marquee with one of his own films in it, Ben-Hur, and there's like a uh, black and white flashback within a color movie, which was very rare at this time. And it clearly is influenced by like uh, European art house movements of the time, despite his American values. <laughs> no, I mean, I feel like there's a real cold, detached feel to this movie that feels very modern and feels very anti-Hollywood uh, system, which is, you know, it's kind of funny considering he, he, he fucking, he made, what, like 50 movies under that system. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. This movie's kind of interesting in seeing him kind of trying to exercise outside of that system. Terrence Stamp plays a, uh, a bank teller, we find out partway through the movie. He was working at a bank and uh, people make fun of him at the bank because he collects butterflies. You ever hear of a man doing this? Uh, someone as manly as Terrence Stamp? Well, he does it. He should uh, get a gun and hunt animals, like a, like, a, like, like a real man instead of 
this you know prancing around in a field with a net that's the thing hey maybe uh if it was an american film uh weiler would have had him you know uh lassoing uh cow- cattle and stuff like that <laughs> but instead oh it's a foo-foo british production <laughs> catching butterflies <laughs> Um, it is it is funny how like all the people at uh, his job are really like into making fun of him for that and how yeah. they like create up like a marionette butterfly thing. Very creative bullying. Yeah, that's like psychopathic. Like the effort <laughs> that you have to put into bullying your coworker there. Uh, you ever seen Jim from The Office? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean that's like I don't know what initially like pulled me in because the collector was like a book uh, that was like pretty famous and like Nico read it and like the premise in itself seems like really interesting and like i don't know for someone like stamp who's like handsome and like uh i don't know very charming it's fun to see him in this like incel cuck role where he's like (laughs) really like a pussy and uh i don't know it's that his performance is like probably the most interesting part of the movie to me and in somewhat of an inverse uh uncut gems in a in a few ways he he makes his fortune off sports betting uh he wins in the football pools and he's able to quit his bank job collect butterflies full time uh and buy a nice house a nice british estate but he uh wants to collect one more thing and it's a lady uh <laughs> So he, because he's this like incel uh, with clear like issues and uh, misunderstandings of like social cues, uh, he, I guess, is very objectifying of women in a very like inhumane way that feels like it's very clearly uh, not an endorsement, you know, mm-hmm. obviously of his character. Uh, and Weiler showing him like in all these different lights, all these weird e- eccentricities that he has. Uh, and also that kind of classic film psychopathic villain uh, who is so precise in everything they're doing. You know, all mm-hmm. the clothes that he buys her and all the preparation that he did in scouting this woman out before kidnapping her, you know. I think, like, I mean, the incel mindset that he <laughs> taps into here is really interesting in the sense where it's like, I mean, also, I think there's like something going on with like class between his character, like being like raised like mostly lower class and like the contrast with uh, Miranda, like her like being like probably upper middle class, like and going to like a nice art school. Like there's that differential there. But it's like he the way he fashions his plan is that like, OK, he's going to kidnap her and lock her in uh, this basement uh, like house area where like ultimately like she'll fall in love with him because he's such a sweet he's such <laughs> a nice guy and she'll see that eventually but like as stamps character unravels you sort of see and like through how he's like oh i would never get along with your friends anyway where it's like self-defeating where it's like I would definitely buy, even if she did fall for him and start to actually like him, mm-hmm. there's no way he would actually like believe yeah. that. You yeah. know, Stamp Stamp is a classic, what we call mental cell. It's not because he looks bad, it's because his own mind gets in the way of him, you know, having relationships. He has a mindset problem. He has a mindset problem. He needs, you know, that's that's what happens when you, you know, you get your money and you sit around and you get lazy. You need to keep on your grind. Yeah, but stack it daily. And yeah, he's someone who's always going to get in his own way. And like this, it happens a lot throughout the movie. You know, he, you know, he could, he even gets close to getting what he wants, you know, not really, but, um, you know, the best case scenario for this, you know, how this kidnapping was going to go. And, um, you know, he just stops himself every, you know, step of the way. And I think what's interesting about all kind of like the background and backstory of these characters, it kind of doesn't really kick in until maybe like midway through the movie. So the opening's like pretty like formless and it's just kind of just uh very silent not a lot of dialogue it's just kind of like a to b like you're jumping in the plot without any exposition kind of like you're just doing the action and that's it yeah Yeah. and and i think from like a like a filmmaking standpoint that was one of the more interesting aspects of the movie for me but once it kind of gets into like the stamp um and his captor you know uh duo you know acting i i feel like yeah it kind of it kind of loses me because it kind of just uh it goes on for a long time and it yeah. doesn't really form itself well it's kind of has a lot of it feels messy yeah i say i feel like it doesn't add up to a lot mm-hmm. like i think it has a really interesting premise there and like going with the capturing but i don't think the conversations that the two have add up to a whole lot 
I don't either, but I think there's enough going on to still weigh it into like good movie territory. Mm-hmm. You know, like Wyler is such a skilled director and not to go back to Saris, but he did write a really good review of this where he's also a bit mixed and he says that like uh, Wyler's uh, direction is professional but unpersonal as ever. Yeah. And I think that really lends itself to the material because if I'm not mistaken, the book is dual point of view, right? It like mm-hmm. alternates between his and her perspective. And I think that this film does a really good job at being more objective and not taking either perspective. Uh, And I think that's really as good as you're going to get because it's so it it seems like a such a literary device to switch points of view like that. There's no real way to film uh, or to cinematically interpret that, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like that aspect of it, but I guess there's maybe like I I guess like what JT said, it doesn't seem to add up to too much and yeah. there's too much of it you know what i mean yeah like, no it's yeah. too long for yeah. sure i think this would have been a really good movie if it was shorter because the middle segment of it like is pretty repetitive and i get the point of that you know they make this agreement that she'll stay there for a month and you know uh then the month passes and he says nope uh which is pretty <laughs> great uh but you know as far as it goes between them it almost gets into like godardian territory that when they're discussing like picasso and catcher in the rye (laughs) he uh, terrence stamp is like talking like fucking uh people that pretend (laughs) i don't want to oh god uh He's making some arguments about Catcher in the Rye. That's like the typical thing you hear about it. Like, why should I care about this guy? He's never, you know, struggled, whatever. (laughs) I don't believe it, for one thing. That boy. Going to a posh school. and His parents having money. He's got no real problem, in my opinion. It's hard to know what to even make of that scene. Because it's so dumb and on the nose. But it's also like you know uh opposing viewpoints of that period in time and culture and i feel Mm -hmm. like you know time has done a lot to that but in the 60s that probably was a more vital conversation you know yeah i mean what i how i interpret that scene i guess with the picasso and the catcher and the rye these are kind of like trendy pieces of art especially for someone in like an art school's uh, milieu and i feel like since uh terrence stamp feels so rejected by you know anything like that any sort of like higher academia or like being like culturally on the nose or even just being uh sociable in general that he just he kind of sees those as like anti him in a way and he just it's funny because the whole catcher in the rye thing you know she's saying how the character sees everything for the phoniness that it is but uh he just thinks the book itself is phony and it's like it's kind of a perspective you see a lot of uh not to complain about like leftists online. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew you were about to go into I know. I already <laughs> avoided it once, and then I was like, I can't not get into it. But it's a thing that a lot of clearly not working class people that have like uh, higher education degrees say about fiction, where it's like, uh, why do I care about this? You know? Yeah. And it's like, uh, like who, who fucking cares? Shut the fuck up. But like, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's like the kind of people who uh, write about why, you know, YA novels are better than the canon or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why. I don't know yeah. why I'm picking targets. <laughs> We're taking <laughs> shots, it, man. Yeah. Yeah. Taking shots at like the easiest targets and still kind of missing, like not really landing anything. But whatever. Hey Ben Shapiro, I think pussies should be wet. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the sex because Andrew Sarris called this the most erotic film made hmm. in the post like Code era, which is. He he has the weirdest horniness ever because this is not an erotic film. Mm -hmm. I think there's one scene, there's one scene where it seems like they're going to have sex, but it's still not a very erotic scene. It still feels pretty detached. Yeah. Even if you're just like super attracted to the characters. I mean, and then it goes into uh, Terrence Stamp again, getting in like the, I mean, there's like a record scratch that like matches up with, I guess him losing his erection. (laughs) Yeah, It's like he gets in his own way. I mean, clearly like, in general, like it is not consensual because she is his captor, but like she, I, I think, in an effort to probably appease him to like get out of it, and like because throughout all of the the film, it's like all of her attempts to like get close to him in any sort of way are obviously yeah. means of like getting out of the situation, but like when she 
turns it up a notch, makes it hot and horny. Yeah. Like he's like, no, you fucking slut. Yeah. So why would you do that? Oh, I don't want that at all. Yeah. I mean, he's very, he's very, uh, he has the technique of just the wait and watch. He's like, you yeah. know, you know, I know capturing her isn't the best plan, but maybe four weeks from now, if we just be nice to each other for a long time, maybe the love will come. You know? And that leads to them uh, brawling out in the rain, and she fucking whacks him over the head with a shovel, and it's bloody, and it's pretty, you know, I, I love that sequence. Mm-hmm. That fight is, you know, Weiler is a classically trained filmmaker, and like all of this is perfectly you know staged the interiors it doesn't really get visually boring to me even though the whole film pretty much takes place in either the basement or the main house uh and then once in a while you get some excursions into the city of london Mm -hmm. uh and all that stuff is shot wonderfully too but uh yeah that that scene where the rain is pouring down and he takes himself to the hospital uh crashing his car along the way you know it's uh really great filmmaking no, to speak to like kind of the interior scenes, I, I do agree that I think Weiler is creative enough to you know make this not feel boring. But I think it's such an interesting house too, and how it's like built in all the little uh, nooks and crannies. Even like the neighbor scene is kind of just there to point out the coolness of the house. It's like, look, priests used to hide here back yeah. in like <laughs> some weird British history shit. By the way, did they ever tell you about this thing? It's a priest hole. A priest could hide in here when he was on the run. There's a story that some of Cromwell's men trapped a poor devil in here and fired right through the wall, killed him. But also, uh, that scene is really good in terms of just pure suspense, you know? Uh, She, his captor, Miranda, is taking a bath. And uh, she's all tied up, but she's using her toe to turn on the water. And so the water in the bath is running and starts to flood the house while uh, Terrence Stamp is trying to entertain uh, the guest. And there's, like, really great vertical use of the frame here where it's, like, upstairs and downstairs uh, splitting the frame. Yeah, right out. when the water's about to drip out, as perfect as can be. There's, uh, you couldn't have done that scene better. I really, there are moments like that. Like that scene is one of my favorites, and then uh, the fight you mentioned. I feel like they're just too like few and far between. Just with like, I think their conversations could be a little bit more tense. Like I like the detached way it's sort of told, but in all of their back and forths, I never feel like. I don't know. It never it never shifts to the point where I believe like her like trying to put on the charms to escape and get out of it. Well, yeah, but I think that's kind of part of it. She's not like uh, an expert like yeah. manipulator <laughs> like him or whatever. Like uh, not that he is even that good at what he's trying to do. Um, I could do it but better. I, <laughs> I think it's believable in the sense that she's trying to like put on a front. Mm-hmm. For a guy who's been torturing her for months, yeah, on yeah, end. yeah like, for sure. I think it's believable in that regard, but I get where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just loses my interest in yeah. those parts. And I think there's like some key points of like imagery, I guess that don't, like kind of or not imagery, but just like key character aspects, like mm-hmm. kind of like the whole butterfly catching thing never really comes to any sort of. Yeah, not really. Feels... The the metaphor is very blunt, and yeah. she even says yeah. it out loud at one point, <laughs> which is like, "Come on, you don't have mm-hmm. to explain that." You know, he caught all these butterflies, and now he's catching me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, it's like in the title we get it, kind of. But yeah. whatever, like it's two hours, and it is too on the nose in some spots. But I think Weiler's classical sensibility mashing up with like European art house tendencies is really interesting. He's a master filmmaker. It looks really good. The color mm-hmm. looks like really great here. Um, the ending is like really darkly funny. I think there's a lot of dark humor throughout this, but the ending is fucking hilarious. Like after he accidentally kills her, he kind of just sits and stews about it for a little bit. <laughs> and then he's just on to the next one. He's like, you know, next time I'm going to find someone who uh, is a little dumber. <laughs> someone who works a job not like an intellectual you know uh and uh what he like doesn't have any remorse about it which is uh, you know i think back then that's like a very clear like uh because uh, i think this is like right when psychology pop psychology as it were was like in the vogue and like yeah. the this this uh psychopath thing of like did they feel any remorse after they committed the crime you know yeah. uh, so he makes sure to say that he didn't uh at the very end he says no it was her fault. She asked for everything she got. Which is one of the stupidest, like, funniest lines in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, like, what won me back over. Because I was, like, almost starting to zone out. And then I was, like, 
this movie has a sense of humor about how like cynical of an outlook on the world this is and like where the the sexual uh revolution is versus like traditional uh like roles and stuff like that and Mm -hmm. like an old timer like weiler who went to world war ii and came back to make movies you know uh is treating this whole fiasco (laughs) of european sexuality the second time that terrence stamp has represented (laughs) european sexuality uh on our podcast you can go back to our episode that we talked about past Lini's Teorema with brats. Yeah, I love I love your term, the fiasco of European uh, <laughs> sex culture. Uh, it think, is it yeah, is yeah, a it, it's yeah. a snafu. It's a situation normal, all fucked up. And I think I think that's a that's a good way to look at this movie, or at least how I feel about this movie, because I think it is it's interesting that an older man made this movie. Like it is, yeah. it is. It's just it's a really big. I think mi- it makes sense though, yeah, because compared yeah. to Pasolini's, it's like definitely the more reactionary film. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but like I, it's just like it's a it's a mixed bag of a lot of things and there's a lot of things going on here even though there's a lot of repetition and i don't know just it because it, it, i did catch the zone out a couple times you know a little yeah. bit throughout but it's it's a no I, shame in that no it's shame a, in that. it's yeah. a full-bodied uh 115 minute movie mm-hmm. no or i think even 120 like on the dot or something like that yeah, yeah. weiler like i was reading originally it was supposed to be like three fucking hours Holy but they cut shit. that this shit down <laughs> best years of our lifestyle <laughs> <laughs> we see stamp get the next one yeah uh yeah i didn't like this much as best years of our lives or teorema I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going three bullets on this one i think there's enough dissonance in like the different film cultures and also just like the style is really just pleasurable and terrence stamp you know he's the man of the hour he kills it we didn't really talk about his performance it's like i read i think it was kale maybe who said that he was slightly effeminate uh like versus what he actually looks like you Mm -hmm. know like for this role and i think it's more of the incel thing of like the shyness i don't even think it's an effeminate quality (laughs) uh actually i don't think being an incel makes you less masculine (laughs) (laughs) Um, but he's playing off of like what would become his star persona in a way that's kind of weird and a lot of movie stars tend to do early in their career when they're kind of experimenting before they land on their like lane that they thrive in you know yeah i'm gonna go three bullets too there's like you know it's a two-hour movie so there's a lot here there's a lot to like there's a lot that i just don't feel anything about in particular but stamp does give a commanding performance that is kind of like the glue of all of it and like there's just some interesting choices weiler makes that just keeps me interested i mean i think the opening in particular where he's just um laying out in the rain and stuff like that just little touches like that just to keep you interested to you know nudge you like hey look at this huh you like this (laughs) and um um and so i appreciate it on that level and uh yeah, it's just it's also you know an interesting historical historical document of just all the different things going on in film at the time. But what about you, JT? Yeah, I'm gonna give this a gentleman's two and a half. I like there is a lot more that I respect in this flick, and I think there are a lot of interesting go- things going on than opposed to me liking it. Um, but there is still like I don't know a lot that's charming, and again, like to dive a little deeper in the stamp performance, I think it's like. He'll be, he'll have those moments where he can go into like, I mean, after especially like um, seeing him like right from the beginning in like full creep mode, like stalking a woman, he can like lean pretty hard into like being charming and like pleasant enough in scenes that it makes it like feel like significantly like a surprise when he goes to be more aggressive and like violent. And it's just like, again, I think he is i don't know it's a it's a good vehicle to capture how that like incel pathology i mean not to say that all incels <laughs> are like this but the, not all incels yeah. uh, i because I, I sympathize fellas trust me um but, but let the record state that jt does regularly sex yeah i i, <laughs> I have sex um but he's pitying you <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, like Terrence Stamp I don't want your sympathy (laughs) (laughs) it's like he taps into that mindset really well in the sense where fuck I lost where I was going with this I'm sorry it's all good Um, but you can get that charming quality to it but then when he like is for like he's always presenting it like he's forcing his hand when he has to go to violence it's like you're fucking making me act this way and i think that like 
contrast there like between like being like a meek character who's actually really warped and fucked up and like quick to violence um works really well and like especially some of the eerie scenes where it's like there's he chloroforms her many times but like there's one moment where he like chloroforms her and like takes her to bed and is just sort of like looking at her and like kind of touching her body that's just like so unsettling and uncomfortable well (laughs) we'll be right back on extended clip you said you'd let me go you can't go back on your word I can do what I like we're back on extended clip it's malcolm in the middle malcolm what'd you watch this week well i watched i watched something a real doozy if i if i could say so myself it's called reflections of evil and it's made by uh the artist damon packard and um there's there's a lot going on in this movie i mean um, from the two movies I've seen by him, Damon Packard's obviously obsessed with movies, and he's obsessed with kind of like maybe some of the, um, you know, maybe like cultural scraps, you know, lesser known stuff. Like uh, there's a whole subplot of uh, Steven Spielberg filming, uh, fuck, if filming a movie I had never heard of that he directed. Do you remember? What? No, I can't. Yeah, think. it's yeah. been a hot minute since yeah. I've seen it. Yeah, well, there's, there's just a great scene of a fake Steven Spielberg impersonator just flailing a dummy about for 10 minutes. And, like, Reflections of Evil is, I mean, in plot-wise, about um, this really large fat man who goes around selling uh, discount watches and either gets in arguments with people or just observes arguments with people. And I would say there's a good, in this two hours and change movie, a good hour of just arguing. And it's like the audio is dubbed in so where you, it seems like sometimes... Like Damon Packard's uh, taking characters off the streets and then just dubbing in other voices to get him to say what he wants them to say. And uh, it's a real, you know, kind of uh, grotesque, ugly movie that, uh, you know, is kind of connected together through like uh, commercials for, uh, you know, lesser known movies, CBS movies of the night as interlude. And it just, it really goes wherever it wants. And it's a real kind of like a freewheeling movie. There's a whole, uh, sequence set to a crosby stills and nash song that of a, of a of a drug dealer that just comes into the neighborhood and that's not even really ever revisited and uh, a great sequence where um i think damon packard the main character masturbates to uh attack of the clones <laughs> in, in a movie theater um just you know because you know he, that's that's what he gets off on he gets off on all these uh the you know cultural mishmash and uh doesn't even have a real uh, definite ending ends with a ironic to be continued which is you know we're not going to see reflections of evil too anytime soon you never know we did we, we did get an uncle kent too so <laughs> <laughs> um but i'm i'm very eager just to consume everything packard has done yeah no packard is so crazy and just like aggressive like I forget, I think it, either myself or Nico, I often forget the actions of, uh, it, they overlap into one form, mm-hmm. but had said that like uh, it's in Packard's LA, everyone is always screaming. Yeah. And it's like, I like his treatment of, because he grew up here, and I like his depiction of, he's just so far removed from the actual film industry and is just bitter and aggressive. Yeah towards like the commercial artifice of it while also being someone who like grew up with like Spielberg and like Lucas and like likes those blockbusters and just seeing in his work how he expresses like hating those directors careers now and sort of the state of the film industry at large Mm -hmm. just emerges in these like schizophrenic sketches that are just so vibrant funny and just like filled with so much action and life this conflict, yeah, this conflict of him hating kind of Hollywood fakeness, but at the same time being an unabashed fan of it is, you know, what's really interesting about this movie. And this is a very, you know, deliberately nasty movie of a, you know, a big, you know, fat man in a, you know, a very poorly made fat suit who's just throwing up, you know, uh, you know, just liquor chocolates and stuff like that. And, and like, but there are sequences where... Packard kind of does hit like some traditional crowd-pleasing filmmaking, but he's going to go out of his way to, you know, deter, not deter that, but give you something much more nasty, much more uh, less consumable. And this movie is very exhausting. Like after watching, I was like, wow, like that was, 
I did a lot of movie watching there. Like I felt like I accomplished something by finishing it. And but it's I, I enjoyed it every second of the way. Um yeah, I'm gonna talk about a movie for just a small segment of the movie. It's like I watched um I've been on the Adam Curtis bent like throughout the summer trying to bone up on these flicks because they, they I love them. Uh, but recently I watched All Watched Over by Machines of Love and Grace. And uh, it previously re- discussed on this very segment. Oh, shit. Yeah. Mal- <laughs> yeah. You brought it up. I did bring it up. I, uh, I, w- I want to bring up just a very tiny bit from like the third uh, episode. Uh, Curtis is talking about jane goodall yeah. and it's like a part of i mean going chimp mode uh <laughs> this episode i like it's something that i was surprised that i mean i guess not surprised that it was left out of my education but i remember like growing up hearing about the woman who like just fucking chilled with these monkeys like yeah. the gorillas in uh goodall's case yeah. and just like observed them but then packer or, i mean oh <laughs> confusing my auteurs here but Curtis, like, revealing that, like, she was racist and the clashes that she had with the community in the Congo mm-hmm. and just became so protective over these chimps that, like, uh, the the people around her, like, just fucking murdered her, like, favorite gorilla because she was so fucking awful. And it's just like, damn, it kind of makes sense that, like, uh, an uppity old white woman that would just move into the jungle to chill <laughs> with gorillas would be, like, a racist <laughs> bitch. But uh, yeah. that's there was an interesting perspective to go into mm-hmm. a link with. No, I mean that's one of my favorite things about Curtis how he ties all these threads into his like main theme using just kind of like offshoot pop culture and examples. But like I feel like one of the main themes of that movie is just like how people kind of uh, create like a, a narrative to follow and that the public can't be trusted with the actual truth, which is you know why we show you know pictures of. Jane Goodall, Jane Goodall, <laughs> pictures of Jane Goodall in science books just chilling with monkeys because it looks cool and it's a nice story and it's, you know, it's good intersection of science and history, but the truth is out there. Yeah. <laughs> Smoking on that Jane Goodall make me feel ape mode. <laughs> what about you, Eddie? Have you watched any movies this week? Yeah, I watched, uh, as I said earlier, in a segment that may have been edited out by this point, I did watch quite a few Looney Tunes this week, uh, but... You know what? I'm not going to talk about those. Although, you know, some stuff like a long-haired hair and the bu- uh, buckaroo bugs uh, are, you know, undisputable classics. Um, <laughs> but I watched a bad movie. Uh, can I talk about a bad movie? Permission granted. Okay. Uh, I watched The Late Shift. This is a 1996 film made for HBO, uh, directed by Betty Thomas. And I know we we love to you know, shine a light on uh, woman filmmakers on this podcast. It's one of our missions, but unfortunately <laughs> Betty Thomas, uh, go into director jail. As far as I'm concerned, damn, we're short. We're shining a light on her just to catch her. And by the way, <laughs> director jail, co-ed, no discrimination there. Of course. Um, never. <laughs> so the late shift is about the late night wars uh in the early 90s you know johnny carson uh everyone's favorite who uh, everyone's been letting him into their home at 11 30 p.m every night for you know 30 odd years uh he's retiring who's gonna get the show next is it gonna be letterman or leno <laughs> uh they for some reason hbo felt compelled to make a dramatized movie about this and as i said in my letterbox log i am like very thankful that that this story came in an era where it was a uh, HBO like dramatization that's 90 minutes because nowadays like and with the the the, uh, the revamp of this beef you know uh, about 20 years later when the late night wars reignited with uh, with Conan and uh, everyone's favorite Jimmy Falone um, you know you get all these fucking YouTube quote unquote documentaries about it and you know you uh, more likely if this came out now it would be like a Netflix series that would be a true crime style thing that would be like eight hours long so <laughs> I do like that it's just like a competently made 90s TV movie uh, with people like Bob Balaban and Ed Begley Jr. and <laughs> Kathy Bates it's pretty much playing the lead uh, as Jay Leno's uh, conniving agent who's just shown as like the <laughs> biggest bitch of all time. <laughs> just like uh, it's 
it's a pretty good performance, I guess. And then it's just so distracting watching actors pretend to be David Letterman or Jay Leno. <laughs> like, these guys who have these performances personas like they're performing on television every night you know yeah. and getting actors like john michael higgins who's not like a household name neither is daniel roebuck uh, daniel roebuck who plays jay leno one of my least favorite performances of all time <laughs> uh, you know, as i said the, the only thing worse than jay leno is someone pretending to be jay leno but the guy doing the letterman impression is the Letterman himself complained about the wig that that guy wore. <laughs> and I think he probably had a lot more to complain about. But um, another weird thing is that they have impressionist Rich Little play uh, Johnny Carson. <laughs> and it's so weird because the first time you hear, you just hear his voice and you're like, oh, okay, they used like an archival Carson clip or something yeah. like that because, you know, he has the perfect impression. Then you look at him and it's just like clearly Rich Little it's just like <laughs> with a gray wig. That's called comedy uh, homage to yeah, the legends. Exactly, yeah, It's just very strange to see him like playing a guy in this movie <laughs> doing one of his bits like for 90 or not. He's not in it for 90 minutes, but you know. Uh, anyway, The Late Shift, awful movie. Uh, every like dramatic beat feels like a comedic one. Like it's so ridiculous. You know, Jay Leno uh, sneaking around, listening in on a meeting of like executives. You're supposed to think he's like cool, you know, doing <laughs> it. And there's even a line where he's like, uh, you know, I may not be smart, but I'm Italian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm gonna stick to Entourage when it comes to you know meta Hollywood depictions yeah uh, i also watched a good movie i might as well balance it out i watched orson wells's othello from 1951 and i i will say this is the first time i've enjoyed a shakespeare adaptation uh besides jean-luc godard's king lear which is obviously not an adaptation if you've seen it but uh this is such an incredible film i i tried to watch it a few years ago and it was just unable to keep up with both the insane audacious imagery and the rapid pace of the Shakespeare dialogue uh, but this time I just gave myself over to the images and uh, you know the, the 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 iambic pentameter it it whatever like it's fine i guess there are some there's some ways that wells edits it that's like extremely interesting um you know it's a famously troubled production he shot it you know <clears throat> over the course of many years in different countries there's a fight scene that starts in one country and ends in another you know and he's using editing and uh different like uh techniques with the camera to mask this as well as possible but i think the artifice is right there on screen i mean it's like he is playing a more so he is in blackface but he's also not in blackface like some of the time and it's weird how like the makeup from one shoot to another clearly changes and i i think it all works as some sort of genius deconstruction of a text that i don't understand but for me, it works purely as like a formal flex for 90 minutes, you know? Anyway, stream Othello. <laughs> that's another one. Don't, don't stream that. I got like a nine gig file of that. And that's what I recommend because we'll be right back on extended clip to go chimp mode with Link. Mr. President, your welfare proposal is nothing but a lot of technical jargon and partisan rhetoric. And <laughs> get off me, Mr. President. <laughs> That's what you get for not hailing to the chimp. And we're back on extended clip. Um, going Terrence Stamp chimp mode. Before we get into that, do you have any t favorite Terrence Stamp performances? I mean, I guess Tia Rima, but that we've, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I really like him in the Limey Me too. a lot. I mean, I, I feel like that's Limey. like the classic Terrence Stamp performance for but, like a lot of like online cinephiles of our age, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I want to check out more. I uh, also like that he reappraises, re <laughs> uh, reappears uh, as the Limey in Soderbergh's Full Frontal just a few years later for a quick scene on an airplane uh, where I think he just turns to a woman and says. I've been traveling a lot. <laughs> that's the whole. That's the whole appearance. Soda heads for yeah. the soda jerks. For the soda jerks out there, for the uh, the limey slash full frontal yeah. cinematic universe. I think about De Palma saying Soderbergh's never made an interesting image in his life a lot. That's so funny because it's so <laughs> not true. It's so untrue. The beef is real. I think De Palma has beef with other directors. He's old school like that. 
They're just both looking at their phones right now. I know. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. No, no. Well, I was looking at Terrence Stamp No, movies. yeah. I was going to say, I knew I knew you guys were looking up film stuff for the podcast, but I just wanted to hit you with that. I wasn't looking up film stuff for the podcast. My father texted me. <laughs> just looking up, I'm just looking up pictures of chimps on yeah. Google image search. <laughs> <laughs> That's real chimp. <laughs> I'm doing research for the podcast. <laughs> just searching hashtag monkey Monday from people you follow. <laughs> There's just a few rules that you have to remember. One, you're the dominant species. You must never, ever treat them as equals. Two, don't ever let anything escalate. Always forgive them, whatever they do. Three, don't get involved in their squabbles. They sort them out. And four, um, some turds in the hole. Clear them up. Um, anyway, so we are talking about Link, the 1986 film by Richard Franklin. Uh, he'd gotten into the States, made some American film, got some clout, and went back across the pond. Uh, made this film in England, uh, which I guess he said was like, uh, you know, key to the production is he wanted the, the English, like, I guess those big barren fields uh, mm-hmm. to clash up with like classical uh, or not even classical, but like modern society with, I guess, primitive, you know, nature. Mm-hmm. Which I guess that's a good setting for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, to, to get to the hills. I mean, he does make the most out of these hills visually. Oh my god! Like just in, you know the classic, you know, kind of uh, landscape shots of you know just the car traveling on it, or just how like towards the end where there's you know kind of chase sequences, how that like uh, the hills play a part in that, you know, and just yeah. location wise. Elizabeth Shue is a young zoology student who gets a job working for her professor, uh, Terrence Stamp, or not even her professor, her boyfriend's professor, who she likes sitting in on the lectures of. Uh, And so he hires her, and it's like, oh, is this the collector again? Is Terrence Stamp just taking another young woman (laughs) to his... uh, uh, his house in England that's so far away from any local city. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no. I mean, early on, he like rides the line between like, oh, okay, is he just like a, a cool professor or is he trying to bone her? No, and he's it, just he a, definitely leans hard into the bone her. And, oh, I was gonna go the other way. I just think he's a jerk, kind of. Like he just mm-hmm. kind of like is. I guess you could say he's negging her. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. there's some weird tension between them, but like mainly he's kind of just a jerk to her. Like mm-hmm. he's just like Those trying couple, to do his business. He's yeah. also in like some trouble it seems doing some illegal monkey trading <laughs> yeah i think i think my my theory splits it down the middle i think he i think he does that have that on the mind there's a couple of moments where you know he puts the hand on the shoulder a little too yeah a little too aggressively but i think he yeah he's in so much trouble right now he's like fuck i gotta get my affairs in order before i get to any of this the title character link uh the the ape is much hornier uh oh <laughs> yeah than Terrence stamp is well, those are the three main stars of it. It's Imp, yeah. Voodoo, and Link are, yeah. the, are the chimp heroes. And uh, what a heroic trio. Uh, shout out Johnny Toe. Uh, <laughs> this trio of chimps, you know, uh, is causing a ruckus. <laughs> Terrence Stamp uh, is trying to sell one of them and get one of them put to sleep. And there's this, like, other British scumbag uh, ape trader, underground <laughs> ape trader, who comes to the house because, uh, you know, Terrence Stamp has disappeared and Elizabeth Shue is trying to like figure out what's going on you know and this guy comes by to take one of the monkeys and that's when she finds out one of them's dead and then the title character Link who you know I guess he's a 45 year old circus chimp whose act used to be uh, you know he was like the king of fire and he would smoke cigars and play with rings of fire and stuff like that and frankly the uh, the bit of a monkey smoking a cigar that's that's a 10 out of 10 for me very very class I mean just from a, a pure chimp standpoint we're looking at this <laughs> I mean, the way he's introduced kind of like in like the dark shadow, like, of course, you like a- after a couple seconds, you realize, oh, that's a chimp. But it's like that could be a person almost. And yeah. then just seeing him perform actions like open doors, lead Elizabeth Shue to her room, being polite. It's like it's fun to see chimps do human things. Yeah. And I'm entertained like by it. <laughs> and there know? is a distinctive like formal quality to quote unquote chimp mode in this mm-hmm. film. Oh, you yeah. Know? It goes into like a Christopher Doyle-esque thing where the I don't know if it's the speed of the film stock or uh, if they're putting it at a different like rate of frames per second or or what but you know when these chimps get like intense 
it goes into something that kind of looks like slow motion or something different with frame rate, as I said. And it all goes to kind of a, a blur of motion, you know, these distinct stills of images. And uh, it makes it so when it returns to a more fluid sense uh, for like the actual action, usually the, the kills as they are, uh, are presented in more like fluid, clean action. They just hit so much harder because of like the distorted, you know, chimp vision uh, mm-hmm. POV shots that you get. No, yeah, that's, I think that's how the movie opens up. Yeah, it opens it? on like, like a slasher style yeah. POV. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like this, you know, getting into Richard Franklin as a director, because we also are doing Psycho 2 for the Patreon episode. Um, he does. He does have great uh, formal control over his movies, and are, is always very game to kind of find visual devices to aid the story along. Mm-hmm. And you know, in ways you know, other mid-tier horror directors might not have been as creative at the time. Yeah. No, I have been pining for Link uh, for a while now because it like. I mean, I was excited to bring Richard Franklin to the table because I had never seen his flicks before, but I felt like he was something we would all like, like kind of a sleazy horror guy in like kind of a Hitchcock vein. And uh, I, I mean, both of these were hits for me. And also, I mean, with Link, I've been, I've been investigating chimp cinema. <laughs> and I think like, I don't know, it's very interesting to have like monkey actors in a movie and like how they react like animals in general like I think when done well it's like like something like white dog like it adds a very fascinating layer to the uh, uh, performances there because it's like I don't know the way the animal is trained convincingly enough link in particular here is a, it like works as a super menacing yeah. orangutan yeah and he also just like that casualty that he has or uh, not even it's not even like a casual. It's really, he's kind of hamming it up, you know, when he's like being more of a human and, you know, being like a butler and doing yeah. his tricks and giving like uh, there. I don't know how Franklin directed it. I mean, uh, he he was offered by the studio, you know, uh, to do it like with prosthetics and with, you know, really like chimp suit type shit. And <laughs> he insisted on like even if he had to purely use uh, manipulation through editing he was gonna get you know performances out of the chimps yeah and he said that it was like easier than he thought it was gonna be <laughs> apparently working mm-hmm. with chimps and like it shows because there's so many reaction shots that are pitch perfect you know like uh, early on when Terrence Stamp is on the phone with Bailey his underground chimp trading connect uh, he like says something about putting down the old guy yeah. uh, which is implying killing the title character and he just like crosses his arms and looks at him like a total fucking ham but it's so good like monkeys can overact I, I'm fine with that yeah you know watching uh, kind of near the opening of this movie I think Franklin's interested in going chimp mode I think he's interested in chimps throughout history and cinema yeah there's a scene where we see a clip from the devil is a woman by joseph von sternberg of marlene dietrich dancing in a chimp suit and then her revealing that you know she's not a chimp she's a person in a chimp suit and it's just it's so interesting that he throws that in there and it just makes me think he's had this on his mind for a long time he's been thinking about chimps in the movies yeah well i mean that's what i really like about like franklin from these two films we've sampled is that it's like he clearly has an understanding of like history and like the genre that he's working in and will like reference that but also like it's like an updated sort of a 80s kind of horror playfulness to it mm-hmm. yeah like especially when uh there's the, the kinks uh ape man needle drop is classic um just like i don't know having like it's it's a silly fun like horror concept yeah. and he executes that like effectively and playfully I mean, throughout the whole thing, it just looks gorgeous. The the drive that she takes uh, in a taxi up to this house the first time is resim- reminiscent of uh, Tippi Hedren approaching uh, Bodega Bay in her car and the birds, you know. <laughs> sure. And Franklin is uh, a student of Hitchcock. And, you know, there's like pictures of him on set, I think on Topaz or something like that. Uh, but like there's clear homages to him. We'll get to the ones in Psycho, obviously. Uh, but I think that the way that he presents everything is so creative throughout this movie and he's using, uh, you know, point of view and subjectivity 
uh, in all sorts of interesting ways between animals and humans and just like objects in the frame, uh, like the male slot POV that is introduced in the first act, you know, uh, it's just like, oh, that's kind of a pointless insert shot through the male slot, but it's pretty cool. And then you get a kill through that male slot in the third act. And it's like, oh, okay, Chekhov's male slot over here. <laughs> uh, but I think Franklin is just like constantly finding ways to have fun with this, not going too dark there are genuine jump scares in it but it is weird it's like a horror movie where the third act for the most part plays out in broad daylight you mm-hmm. know uh it becomes night at the end <laughs> but like uh it's uh it has like a very light tone but like it's still very menacing and they're like the really unsettling moments to me i mean one in particular jumps out is where it's like uh elizabeth shoe is like uh, about to like shower yeah. and get yeah. a bath and like skip the 38 minutes and 38 seconds <laughs> you know, that's a, that sounds like a guess but that sounds about right yeah i'm gonna say it's around 50 minutes that's what i'm gonna say um but like link like watching her there like sort of steps in the doorway and is like this is like a horny orangutan and it's like it's uncomfortable and unsettling and i think it's like it's like just combined with like you can't read a monkey's facial expressions as well as like a human's i think like the ambiguity there and just like because they're like he like forces her to get out of the tub yeah, oh, <laughs> such a weird just like exchange of shot reverse shot for like 30 seconds of them just staring each other down naked yeah and then she just grabs the robe and gets out of there yeah that's yeah i mean that's one of those scenes where you're like how did you direct that like that's yeah you have to tiptoe around that but i think that's also another interesting idea that uh, uh that's being played with here is kind of like Link's interactions with humans and kind of like, I think there's like a point made that Terrence Stamp makes uh, in the beginning of the movie. It's like the difference between us and chimps is civilization. And I think there's a lot of lines where she's like, it's like, that's not how someone acts. Like you have to be civilized. And it's kind of like, I don't know if Link's, maybe is Link rejecting civilization here? Is that what's going on? It could be. Yeah. It I mean, I, it seems it seems like a, a question that maybe someone who knows science could get more out of. <laughs> Return to <Yeah>. tradition. <laughs> <laughs> Also, because um, Terrence Stamp is only in like the first 30 minutes of the movie, he yeah. kind of disappears um, right before a lot of the fun happens. But I just wanted to, a little throwaway comment here, but uh, when Shu first comes to him to volunteer and, you know, he says, well, you're not a boy. And he's like, she's like, well, why would that matter? And he's like, well, I'm collecting sperm. And I'm just like... <laughs> Bro, what? You're collecting <laughs> sperm? I mean, he is also... Imagine your teacher asking you for your cum. Yeah. <laughs> what is he doing with it? Is he mixing it with <laughs> monkey cum? I just want it. <laughs> There's another great line he has when they like first get to uh, like his uh, place um, where he's like, Oh, well, there's some turds in the hall you could clean up. (laughs) He's really good in this because he's kind of like a mad scientist vibe. Mm -hmm. Like his hair is all over the place and he's like a doctor, you know? Yeah. Uh, And, uh, but he's also just kind of a shit bag. Yeah. Just kind of a douche and like a jerk. And like, uh, I think Stamp is just so good at having that like disaffected quality to him, you know, Mm -hmm. even when he's. I don't know, playing a more broad character. Mm-hmm. Now, I liked how kind of like shaggy and dissonant he is in this movie and just kind of like, it almost kind of feels laid back to an extent. I mean, in terms of like the academic elite and yeah. kind of a critique there, I mean, he gets into some Epstein territory yeah. and being a shady professor. I know he references like having friends with private islands <laughs> and stuff like that about how he got his little like private sanctuary <laughs> I, away. I, and it's, I, I think, you never I think, know. I think he's, he like, cause you know, those islands, right. They, they're doing everything under the sun over there. And I think he's the animal department. I think he's shipping <laughs> off chimps for celebrities to have sex with Damn, over there. That's fine. Fucked up. Yeah. Uh, the kills in this are pretty brutal. Uh, one of the first ones, uh, I guess the first one that you see is of Link killing a dog that's hunting down yeah. Elizabeth Shue's character, Jane, of course, named for Jane Goodall. He just like fucking whacks the dog against a metal pole, like on its neck, pretty much mm-hmm. like they're wrestling. <laughs> yeah. It's fucking hilarious. All the chimp kills in this are like, they're a little scary, but they're very funny. No, yeah. I mean, I feel like it, it, it uses kind of like horror filming, horror filmmaking techniques, but kind of 
ends up kind of being more of like like an action adventure movie almost yeah in a yeah sense. because of the light tone the kind of mm-hmm. comedic tone like doesn't really like translate to horror because it's also not like a horror comedy necessarily because mm-hmm. there's no like jokes it's just like tonally more like a horror comedy um as we said yeah so it goes into more horror like traditional slasher stuff of the 80s you know that's something richard franklin does is kind of more classic forms but like uh 80s slasher versions like psycho 2 is like a slasher version of or you know psycho is obviously like the proto slasher but that's more outright like an 80s slasher and this one you know it's kind of like jaws but more like a sleazy 80s slasher especially the way it's structured you know you're heading into the third act and you get elizabeth shoe's boyfriend and her and his two homies uh coming up listening to the ape man as we said <laughs> uh like just coming into you know you're thinking don't go in the house they go in the house mm-hmm. don't go you know and it's just like follows that traditional uh slasher dumb teen logic uh but to great effect i think richard franklin's like a phenomenal filmmaker yeah. here it's like he's constantly finding stylistic ways to blow me away there's a uh double iris where it's like uh, a pov shot of elizabeth shoe looking at a pair of glasses and each uh, glass, uh, each lens rather, uh, gets a little iris uh, like out uh, transition into a shot of the ocean, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and then it, it's revealed that that's like a binoculars POV shot. And then you get the wide reveal of her on top of the house looking through <laughs> binoculars. And, you know, the house is just this huge, gorgeous, you know, mansion uh, that is always photographed in such interesting ways no yeah i think he's really good at, at like uh, getting the anatomy of a building both here and in, in psycho 2 and i think he really loves those uh those bird's eye shots that he does to like yeah. depict action and he does a lot uh with those that i think really work in like these these very intricate houses and like you know the way like their staircases slant or just you know just the architecture of them being well, yeah, displayed well the, the staircase it's like he's taking uh, a shot he took from the original psycho for psycho 2 that mm-hmm. overhead headshot on the staircase and he uses it here too you know mm-hmm. yeah exactly. and like he uses a few things that kind of reveal the artificiality of it uh as homage to those super artificial classic hollywood films uh like in psycho 2 there's this you know zoom out and this is like a teaser for the patreon uh, psycho <laughs> 2 discussed on this week's patreon uh there's like a a pull uh back uh on this two shot in one of the bedrooms of the bates estate and uh, the further you pull back, you just see the borders of the room and then it's just black all around it like it's mm-hmm. in this void. But really, that's just like unlit studio space, you know. And yeah. then in this one, you have the camera moving over the ceiling to reveal the false ceiling. And, you know, it's like a, a top down version of like the, the ladies man, Jerry Lewis house, <laughs> you know, uh, where it's like clear the artificiality of it. No, yeah, I mean, he's obviously, I think Franklin's very masterful here. And, like, to go back to something where you're talking about, like, it's kind of mixed tone a little bit. I mean, you're talking about the needle drop when um, the boyfriend and his friends come Mm -hmm. up. I mean, it's so jarring because we're we're just going through, like, 10 minutes of, like, intense chase sequence. And then then we just cut. We don't even cut. We we transition to, like, a, like a, uh, like a drone or helicopter shot of like the field yeah. and, and then we go into the the car of the boyfriend it's so it's so visually impressive and like such a a great tone switch that like i don't that you know that stuff gets me off yeah yeah no i think that like the inclusion of the boyfriend and his friends like not only add more blood for link to to, <laughs> to get but like it's uh, i don't know it keeps things fresh like you saw them in the beginning and they're like pretty disposable there and like he just gets rid of like i don't know it's only um to build to the final set piece but it does it so effectively and then just the the ending is like the perfect culmination of everything he's been working towards i mean with what you were saying eddie about like um or both of you i think with the civilization versus nature stuff ultimately shu is able to like trick link because she's like left the gas on and is like goading him like well you like a monkey can't like <laughs> like smoke cigarettes or i mean smoke a cigar you can't do that and that's ultimately his his chimp hubris oh. wanting to be perhaps perhaps link uh in his lust for elizabeth shu he wanted to go pimp mode when he was already chimp mode. And that is his dangerous. fatal flaw. Yeah. Dangerous from, to mix the two. You can't go from chimp to a pimp. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> <laughs> and monkeys don't smoke cigars. And they can't even cook. 
Only humans can smoke, Link. What are you? No, but I think I think Link goes out in you know the most badass way possible. Oh, I love it. Just burning down the entire mansion, and then just him on top of it, just lighting one last. One last big fat log before he uh, <laughs> yeah. he burns off into the sunset. I love that because yeah, they explode uh, the oven and burn down the house uh, through a gas leak, and you know, goading him into a light a match as teased in the first act of the movie classic again uh and uh yeah, he's just like perched up there and then falls down in a classic like a. Uh, uh, like Jimmy Stewart falling off uh, the building in the beginning of Vertigo. You know, it's like that classic green screen oh. effect of the monkey's yeah. body in silhouette falling into the flames. Beautiful filmmaking mm-hmm. for such a silly thing. And that's like what I love the most about this movie. I, it's really great. I, you know what? I was going to go three and a half. I'm going whole, not whole hog. I'm going whole chimp here. I'm going four bullets <laughs> for Link. No, yeah, I'm going to go three and a half bullets. I like this a lot. I think, yeah, I think that's, if I were to guess what Franklin's thing is throughout, you know, just these two movies we watched, is that he's getting at like some serious, um, some some serious, you know, really good filmmaking and some topics through, you know, kind of ways that you wouldn't take as seriously, you know, people kind of... Uh, poo-poo animal movies chimp movies say it's you know it's gimmicky it's i mean it's i mean he uses them to great effect here i think i mean it's there's nothing really gimmicky about his use of chimps um and yeah i i liked it a lot what about you jt um i'm also going three and a half bullets i was uh like i i'm so happy that this was as great as i was anticipating it (laughs) to be and that franklin is a director who i'm like super excited to explore more of his work because he's definitely taking these like Hitchcock and like classic horror riffs and like updating them, but like keeping such like beautiful imagery and like such a light, playful tone that like mixes them so effectively that it's just like, I don't know. It's uh, this and Psycho 2 were so fun. Yeah. Um, wait, did you say four or three and a half? Uh, three and a half. Out one ear in the just other. Just that you're in your mind is the chimp uh, playing <laughs> <Yeah>. symbols. <laughs> well, you can't think about anything without thinking about something else, right? Exactly. You know? The extended clip promise. <laughs> and I think, I mean, I think overall our scores, um, we have settled the classic debate in pimp v chimp. Oh yeah, I, you yeah. gotta go it's chimp, chimp. Mode. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? Just because of that, and not because of anything we had planned before. Uh, we're going to continue going chimp mode next week with one of our movies. Next week, oh boy, what a double feature we have. A couple of comedies about little stinkers. One of them has become a cult classic uh, after its failure, and the other one is still suffering in the bowels of uh, comedic film failures. Uh, our friend Roger Carno is going to be joining us to talk about Clifford, uh, the Martin Short and Charles Grodin film. And Monkey Bone, starring Brendan Fraser. <laughs> and yeah, Cl- when we're talking Clifford, there ain't no big red dog around here, I'll tell you that. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Eddie's at a loss for yeah, words from I what just... I said. <laughs> I completely broke him yeah. down. I had a few things in my head going, and I was like, what? <laughs> I just want to grunt and make chimp noises to lead us out. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely on our like Rogan tip right now. Yeah. Like, we're definitely getting more animalistic with mm-hmm. it, more more aggressive. More primal. More primal. Yeah. Um, no emails this week. Extendedclippodcast at gmail.com is where you can email us next week. We'll, we'll hopefully have an email. Yeah, we're not going to cool. beg. Uh, <laughs> patreon.com slash extended clip i'm gonna say it again patreon.com slash extended clip that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash e-x-t-e-n-d-e-d-c-l-i-p <laughs> <laughs> you're no cheerleader eddie i'll tell you <laughs> <laughs> uh on the patreon <laughs> On the Patreon this week, uh, we talked about, or we're going to talk about, uh, Psycho 2, directed by uh, Chimp Mode uh, creator Richard Franklin. Next week uh, on the Patreon, in addition to the little stinkers on our double feature, we're going to bring back the first little stinker we ever talked about, and we're going to be talking about Problem Child 
2. I'm excited. I'm really excited. The first outright sequel to an episode. Our most listened to episode. Really? No, our least listened to episode. <laughs> <laughs> really? I got my it might not be our least listened to anymore, but for a while it was our well, least listened I mean, to episode. Well, I mean, because fucking crackers on yeah. there. I blame but the crackers. nobody wants Jack Warden. Jack Warden. I mean, yeah. I don't even know if he's in the sequel. I hope he is. Let's see. I don't think he is. <laughs> Alright, uh, we'll see you next week. Closet like Planet of the Bigs. Monkey see, monkey do. Monkeys following in place. Like I'm living in the episode of Planet of the Ape. Like I'm living in the episode of Planet of the Ape. Like I'm living in the episode of Planet of the Ape. Like I'm living in the episode of Planet of the Ape. Like I'm living in the episode of Okay, everybody. I have an announcement to make. From now on. I will be known as Coco the Monkey. Like I'm living in the episode of Planet of the Apes. Like I'm living in the episode of Planet of the No more Grease Monkey. I don't care for that term. No more Grease Monkey. I don't care for that term. Oh, sorry, I didn't know. I don't know too many monkeys who could take apart a fuel injector. I saw one once that could do sign language. Yeah, I saw that one. Coco. Yeah, Coco. Right, Coco. A chimp's all right. I, 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 I am just a monk away, and I'm glad you are a monkey. I hate every ape I see, from chimpanzee to chimpanzee. No, you'll never make a monkey out of.